You're listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. the currency that drives the world of sport from the grassroots entry levels right up to professional and elite world-class sport however could it be that what we don't know and understand about talent talent identification and talent development is the very thing that's holding us back from achieving true top performance well there's plenty of evidence indicating that this is indeed the case. If we dig into the current research surrounding talent, it's quite evident that our lack of understanding in the areas of talent ID, talent development, and even talent itself may be the very thing that's holding us back from actually achieving true talent development. It's one of the greatest conundrums in sport today. If we're going to move sport and human performance forward, we need to better understand what talent actually is and how to address it within our sporting system. We need to better understand talent identification and the powerful influence it has, both positive and negative, on the process of athlete and player development. And in the course of an athlete's development, where does talent ID even make sense? I think we're way, way off course here. And not only that, currently we are absolutely horrific at trying to predict future performance and future development based on an athlete's current status. We just don't have it right yet, and I'm not saying we ever will. Maybe it's just not possible. And on that note, we also need to better understand the process of athlete and player development. It's a long game with countless variables. And I have a strong feeling it's not what we should be doing that's really messing this up or slowing us down or preventing us from achieving true top performance. It's more about what we should stop doing. You can go back more than 10 years to one of our first episodes dedicated to the topic of talent, where we spoke with Jeff Colvin, Fortune's senior editor-at-large, about his book that was released at that time. It was called Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers from Everyone Else. It's a great read that looked to answer the question, why do so few excel where so many do not? And what makes these top performers so special and who they are? Are those top performers born with it? Is it a natural gift to be blessed with an innate talent that allow us to be good at sport or good at music in chess or in business? Or is it flat out straightforward hard work or maybe a certain type of work ethic or hard work that needs to be applied in order to be successful? Or could it be a combination of all of these things and much, much more? One thing that Colvin is convinced of is the fact that better performance and maybe even world-class performance is up for grabs and maybe closer than you think. Talent has been a crush theme since the very beginning, and I can comfortably say this. We have a better understanding of what it's all about, but also what we don't know about this amazing concept could fill a warehouse. So why don't we do this? Let's start unpacking that warehouse to see what we have and to see exactly where we're at. This week on Crush Performance, we break down the Crush must-read book, The Tyranny of Talent, how it compels and limits athletic achievement, and why you should ignore it as we talk with Crush Hall of Famer, Dr. Joe Baker.
And we're joined now by Dr. Joe Baker, professor at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Education, and also the inaugural chair of the Tannenbaum Institute for Science in Sport. Dr. Baker, welcome back to Crush Performance, and congratulations on the move to uh, the University of Toronto there. Sounds like a very exciting time for you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's uh, yeah, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, but the uh, the adventure is just starting, and yeah, we're really excited about what we're going to be able to accomplish there. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you guys are doing there as well. There's so much we don't know, and it isn't it kind of like a rabbit's hole sort of a scenario where you know we think we're in a good place, and then we discover something, and we realize who we've got a little more work to do there, and that's what I found. Dr. Baker, with your book, The Tyranny of Talent, How It Compels and Limits Athletic Achievement and Why You Should Ignore It. You know, I find myself trying to be very open minded and and looking at the research and trying to stay really open to ideas. Um, But reading your book, it it really got me expanding my thought process. So I want to thank you for that, because despite all my efforts, I, you know, you, I guess maybe this happens to everybody. I'm not sure, but I do get caught up in my world and sort of my line of thinking as I try to help athletes, teams, and organizations succeed. Uh, but you really got me thinking about some cool things that I might not have thought about otherwise. Yeah. And I think that's the, the advantage of being a researcher. That's sort of a few steps removed from actually having to work with athletes, right? Is the, you know, when the job that you do and the organizations that you work with, you actually have to come up with solutions and ideas. Uh, and so, you know, the, the researchers allowed to take a step back and say, okay, here's the size of the problem. Here's the scope of issues that, um, that we need to be aware of. And that's kind of where I was coming at from, uh, with the book was let's talk about how complicated this area is and the jobs that we, you know, that we give to people, uh, in high performance sport and, and grassroots sport. Um, and we ask them to make a good job of it and there's risk there, there's consequence there, there's, um, you know, there's real people there. Uh, and so, in order to do a better job, like you said, we have to be open-minded, but we also have to have a, an idea of the size and the scope of the problem that we're talking about. Well, and that's a very interesting point because, um, you know, leading up to your book, we just, uh, maybe the stars aligned, I'm not sure, but uh, here on the show, <laughs> we did a we did a, a year-long series with you, a bunch of your colleagues and, and experts from all around the world, looking at talent identification and talent ID, and the response from our audience, which is parents, coaches, and athletes and even GMs and administrators from all over the world, I was actually surprised a lot of people didn't realize that this uh, concept of talent was such a big thing. And I don't think people really understood that um, it was such an issue that we needed to address the the issues involved. I think people kind of thought, well, talent, we kind of know what it is, but boy, boy, we still have a long way to go. I think that's an important point. And that's where, you know, our research on the concept of talent going back about 10 years now, that's where we started. Like, really, do we need to spend the time to talk about talent? Don't we agree what that is? Don't we know what that is? And the more layers of that onion that we peeled back, the less stable that whole concept was. Uh, And so for us, a lot of the work that we've done over the last decade has been focusing on uh, describing and um, conceptualizing what we know so that we can ask better questions and move the discussion forward. It's interesting. I was I gave a talk to a bunch of grad students just yesterday, and the main point of uh, the one section of the talk was we have no reason 
to be certain about anything to do with athlete development, except for the idea that it takes a long time and you got to practice. Everything else is kind of up for grabs because it, we haven't explored it well enough to be able to say anything conclusive about those relationships. And I think talent is one of those things where we have a whole sport system that kind of embraces this concept, but it means different things to different people. It means something different to a coach than it does to an athlete. Uh, and from a scientific standpoint, we can't have those differences in definitions. We have to agree on what it is so that we can write policy and we can design training environments to be able to match the expectation that we have for what this concept actually is. Uh, you know, I often say that if I had one wish for all the athletes, my kids as well, my, my, my daughters and the athletes I work with and the, the people I engage with professionally, if I have one wish for them, it would to help them become or wish they could become really, really good problem solvers and really, really good decision makers. And one thing I found, Dr. Baker, you know, even working with the elite athletes at the highest levels of sport, um, really identifying what we've really hone in on. And I think we've had some success here, but it goes back to your point that, boy, we need that definition. Um, diagnose, 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 understand the problem clearly so you can move forward with purpose. And it's funny. Well, not funny. It's fascinating. Um, you know, in your book, you mentioned, and, uh, in our conversations in the past, you mentioned, we really don't have that concise agreed upon definition of talent. That's a fascinating and very, uh, complex and, and troublesome starting point, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And if we can't agree on, you know, and this was one of the most startling things of our research over the last uh, bunch of years was when you bring a dozen coaches in the room and you ask them to define what talent is, you get a dozen different answers, which um, that's a problem for coaches, but it's a real problem for researchers. If we can't even agree on what the definition is, then how do we provide coaches and policymakers with evidence to be able to write good policy? We can't do it because nobody agrees on what the thing is we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like what you said about, you know, coaches having a different perspective. I'm sure I know parents have a different perspective, especially yeah. when it comes to their kids. So, so it's an interesting little conundrum in the sporting world. Dr. Baker, I wanted to ask you this question, uh, getting you on the show here. Once again, you've been in the game here now for quite some time and you focused on this area. Um, where do you think we've come since we started in our understanding of talent? Again, the book you did, a, for me personally, did a great job in getting me thinking about so many things that I don't think I really paid heed to. So that was that was really good for me professionally. But you've obviously seen some great changes. Are we in a good place right now? I think I think we're in a better place than we were. Um, the, you know, the optimist in me says the changes that we've seen over the last couple of decades through the Moneyball era, through the VR and, the, you know, the focus on cognition and decision making and ecological dynamics, all of these things are, uh, you know, in a very broad way are helping us understand just how complicated this thing called athlete development is. So we've moved away, I think, in a pretty big uh, perspective uh, from this one size fits all, one strategy is going to explain everything. You know, deliberate practice is all you have to do. Uh, we've moved away from those sorts of simple models for most of the things that we deal with in athlete development. We still have a long way to go, but I think we're we're starting to see um, all of the pieces, at least all the pieces of the puzzle. Now we just need to figure out the right combination that they fit together. 
Yeah, we're speaking with Dr. Joe Baker, professor at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education and the inaugural chair of the U of T's Tannenbaum Institute for Science in Sport and the author of today's topic, his book, The Tyranny of Talent, How It Compels and Limits Athletic Achievement and Why You Should Ignore It. Well, how about this then? You know, um, in, in the different impressions or different understandings or different definitions of talent, it's interesting. One part of the book, you talk about a Harvard experiment that uh, was sort of centered around music and musicians. They listened to a couple of musical scores and they were led to believe it was played by different uh, musicians. Um, and the uh, description of those musicians sort of steered their impressions of the music. Unbeknownst to them, of course, it was the same musician playing the music, but uh, we had an interesting outcome of that. And that was the idea that uh, most of the people valued hard work in terms of the quality of the music they heard. I thought that was a fascinating sort of twist on understanding how we perceive talent or even talent outcomes. Yeah, it's quite a, a really cool and fascinating study that was done by Tussain and Benaji out of uh, out of Harvard a bunch of years ago, maybe even 10 years ago now. Um, but what was interesting about it was the disconnect between the things that assessors, and this was musical assessors, but you could assume the same kinds of things um, in coaching. And we have some, some data from colleagues that's not quite published yet, but shows the same sort of thing that the things that coaches say they value and the things that actually result in the decisions that they make are sometimes different things. And so, you know, in the, the say in Benaji study, they say that uh, the assessor said that they valued hard work more than natural talent, but when they had to make the decision, they were more likely to choose the person that was described as having natural talent, even though the music was played by the same person. So, you know, it wasn't a different in performance ability. Uh, and for me, that was one of the first studies that uh, we became aware of that looked at this complicated sort of cognitive decision-making structure that's happening when people make decisions about talent and performance and skill. Uh, and so we've been on a, a quest over the last 10 years to be able to unpack that in coaching settings. Uh, and we're just starting to get there. And that naturalness bias that, say, in Benaji uh, looked at is one of the places that we started at. But we're pretty sure that there's other ones, confirmation bias, hindsight bias, uh, my side bias, those kinds of things are going to show up uh, in coaching um, athlete selection scenarios, just like they would in other scenarios that other humans do. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. And that word bias is a big one. We had uh, Dr. Mm. Alex Roberts uh, on uh, from Latrobe University talking about her work on coaching bias. You actually introduced us to Dr. Roberts and that was a fascinating conversation. I think just having those conversations has to be great for sport. Um, it's not that we maybe want to eliminate those natural biases people might have in terms of who they select or why they select, but being aware of that may change the way we go about doing that business. Fair to say? Yeah, I think so. The, you know, the, the reality is that our brains have evolved these biases for a reason. That's not all downside. There's a lot of upside to these biases. They help us make decisions quickly, um, you know, in, in situations where we don't have a lot of time. So there, you know, there's advantages there, but I think you, you and I were discussing this off air, but you know, I think it's, 
you know, the optimist in me would say that we're getting to a point where we're starting to recognize, hey, for this situation, I need the right tool, not any tool will do. And so maybe we're think, rethinking about how we use uh, tools like analytics. Um, yeah, we can use that to help us offset this cognitive bias that might affect the accuracy of our prediction. Uh, but we're not going to use it in our scenario, every scenario. We're is it in this really specific one where we know it works? And then in different scenarios, we're going to come up with different tools. And so, again, it's this recognition of the complexity that we're talking about that's maybe been the greatest improvement in the way that we think about athlete development and sports science and talent forecasting. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important area that we need to focus on. And the idea of coaches, right? I think we kind of have a common theme when we talk with our athletes. You know, the fact is nobody can do it alone. You need those people around you. You need those tools. Data and analytics, I believe, is a great, great tool if it's kept sort of in perspective and in its box. But without question, I think one of the really important um uh, parts of the sporting landscape and athlete development is the idea of the coach themselves. They need to be there. And good coaching, high-level coaching, is a big piece in the talent development puzzle. And I think that's something that sort of resonated from your book as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because the, you know, the, the coaches design the environments for the athlete to acquire the skills that they need. Uh, and so the more we can get coaches that understand learning needs and um, child and adolescent and, and human development, the better environments they're going to construct for those people to acquire those skills. Um, I think that's, you know, that's a pretty consistent finding that we've seen all over the last 20 years or 30 years of learning studies is the, the feedback is important. The way we construct learning environments is important. The, the type of rest and recovery environments that we uh, prescribe for our athletes are important. Uh, so all of those things go into this equation that we call athlete development. Yeah, I think one of the metaphors, correct me if I'm wrong here, so I'm, I'm pulling this from my memory, which can be a scary thing at this point. I, I don't know what's going on there, but but one of the metaphors in the book that I really liked, it, it resonated me, it resonated with me for some reason, was this idea of the environment and the coaches and uh, the metaphor of, of uh, the cake and making a cake. You have all these raw materials, yeah. and when you put them together and put it in the oven, you get this beautiful cake. If it's right in the right temperature, they're mixed the right way in the right sequence in the right order, you get this beautiful outcome, this delicious cake. But if they're not mixed in, you, you can have the same raw materials, but if they're not mixed together properly or in the right order, or if they're not cooked at the right temperature for the right time, you get this terrible, unedible mess at the end. I resonated for me uh, with me for some reason. Yeah, I love that metaphor. And it's not mine. I think uh, the the first person that I uh, read that was using it was Richard Dawkins. And it was, oh, yeah. this, it, it was such a great way of sort of capturing this um, nature and nurture interaction. We think about these things as opposing forces, but we need to be thinking about them as how they interact together. And that sort of cake metaphor was such a great one because, yeah, if we you, you once they've started mixing up and they're in an environment that um, you know is designed a certain way, it becomes a thing at the end. And if you do everything right, it becomes a beautiful and delicious cake. But you're never able to say at the end of the journey that this is where 
the flour is or this is where the egg is. No, it's no longer separatable into those component parts. It's a cake now. Uh, and I thought that's that's such a better way to be thinking about um, human development and athlete development as, no, there there isn't the genetic raw material versus the environment. It's what's the right environment for that person's biological predispositions and desires and drives. And are we constructing the environment that allows that person to thrive? That's a different kind of question than, you know, what proportion of it is genes versus environment. The wrong question. Too, again, too simple. Yeah, way too simple. Dr. Baker, okay, we're going, uh, we're going off the rails here a bit, <laughs> which is perfectly okay. So I think, don't you think there's massive, massive implications here for not just developmental sport, but elite sport as well. You know, we look at that world of scouting and talent ID. Let's just uh, let's let's just set aside the idea of early talent identification for now, because that's a topic mm. we definitely have to address again here today. But like once once a team, once a players get to like their draft level or their their college NCAA sort of elite varsity sport levels, um, don't you think there's something to take away there? I mean. These uh, college recruiters and professional scouts in virtually every sport, they go out and try to find pieces that might fit into their puzzle rather than potentially looking at potential that they could harness and put together and bake like that cake inside of a system they create for that athlete. If I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, so that's um, that's the approach that we take with some of the teams that uh, that we work with, and and it's again recognizing the complicated nature of athlete development. It doesn't stop once they're drafted. It doesn't stop once they're put into a development system in you know Major League Baseball or or the NHL or or whatever it is. That hey, there's a environment that you're putting that person into that's going to impact their uh, likelihood of success, and so. Um, aren't just round pegs that you can stick into a hole. There's a developing organism there. And, and, you know, Major League Baseball is a great example. Sometimes these are kids that are drafted right out of high school. Their brain isn't even fully developed yet. And so let's recognize that there's potential for development that's happening in that athlete. And that's going to depend on the connection between what that athlete needs and the environment that we put them in. And so teams that we work with, we focus on, yeah, let's understand the athletes better, but let's also understand the environment that you're putting them into. Is it the right one for the development of that type of athlete? And not just assume that all athletes develop in the same environment or at the same rate or in the same direction. Um, no, let's, let's say there are certain types of players that are going to thrive in the environment that we provide. And then maybe that helps us draft them better and smarter instead of just assuming that, Hey, every person on the board is equally likely to develop in the environment that we provide. Uh, no, they're not. That's not how environment and, and uh, individual interaction works. Uh, again, so can we get more complicated, but also uh, more accurate in the way that we make those kinds of decisions? We're talking with Dr. Joe Baker, professor at the University of Toronto and author of The Crush must-read book, The Tyranny of Talent, How It Compels and Limits Athletic Achievement and why you should ignore it. I think that whole conversation goes back to a portion of the book where you talk about labeling athletes. Now, this goes probably back more to um, uh, early talent ID. And and just right now, what you were just talking about makes me think of 
one of my nemesis in sport. And that's the bantam drafting in hockey. I have a real hard time with that one, Dr. Baker. You know, you're looking at 14, 15 year olds and you're trying to identify them as elite. You set them up on that pedestal. You take them away from home. You have them play with 19, 20 year olds in some other part of the country. Boy, I have a problem with that one because if you look at, and again, another thing that was really uh, mentioned in the book that I appreciated was the um, the real poor, um, I guess, uh, a transition from junior national teams to senior national teams, which I is I thought that was a really interesting thing. But I've seen that as well. So this this idea of labeling and trying to put those you know square pegs into round slots, it just is not successful. I think we've got to move on from that somehow. It's an interesting question, and it's amazing that we have so little information about the power of those labels, you know, in sport for sure, but even in things like education, where very early we make decisions about kids uh, to put them into a, you know, a gifted program versus one that's developmentally delayed. Um, you know, we make these decisions with kids uh, all the time, but very little understanding of the power that that label has uh, over that person's, um, you know, long-term development. In sport, I think it's um, it's quite critical and maybe easier to get a handle on because the time spans for a development in sport are so much bigger than they are for an edu- education. But it's an interesting question that, you know, I've, I've just given this person a contract at 15 to play in a junior uh, development program uh, for the OHL. Let's, the, let's say, for example, let's pick on Ontario. But um, th- what, when I've done that to that person, what does it do to their cognition? We, knows that, we know that it does something because we've had a number of conversations with junior national team directors where they say that that feeling of athletes uh, when they get that feedback that they feel like they've made it they get the full you know um, they get the team uniform they get the junior national team full kit they get to go to a world championship they get this sort of the carrot um, but what it does to their cognition might actually undermine the kinds of things that they need to drive future success um, because they're told, you know what, you're, you're the next superstar. You're, you're going to, you know, you get drafted in the junior draft in the first round, you assume I'm going to the NHL in the first round, but we know that the data doesn't support that relationship, that the predictive ability of junior performance is actually not as great as you would think in predicting senior performance. So what's happening there to drive that disconnect. And we think a little bit of it, uh, is cognition. A little bit of it is also the complexity, you know, the entropy. It's more likely things are going to go wrong uh, than they are to go right. But part of it is cognition because we see it in behavior. We see it in the athletes. Uh, and so again, you know, our big thing is anything that we do as a coach, as a system, as a parent, that's going to undermine the athlete's motivation to continue to drive uh, their success through practice and training and, and, you know, sacrificing weekends so that they get better sleep and those kind of anything that undermines the quality of that process is, is undermining long-term potential for success. Oh boy. That is a twisted, twisted tale, isn't it? And that kind of kind of runs in parallel with the idea of the Matthew effect, uh, you know, of the accumulated mm-hmm. advantage as well. Right. I mean, the, if we look at even younger, younger athletes who get selected for rep teams or travel teams, 
Uh, they may be in a situation at that point in their development where maybe they're slightly ahead of their peers. So it, it, it might seem like they're more talented or maybe they just have more physical ability at that time. But in the long game of athlete development and player development, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to continue to rise where one of the players who wasn't selected uh, may at the end of the road turn out to be a more successful athlete at the higher levels. What a twisted tale that is. Yeah, which is also one of the reasons why we can never really get a good handle on the accuracy of our selection decisions because so much of it is driven by the um, self-fulfilling prophecy of choosing an athlete, saying they're talented, giving them all the resources and you know better peers, better competitors, better uh, coaches, better facilities. Um, and then at the end of it saying, look, they were better. Well, yeah, they were better because you gave them all of the things that made them better. I agree. And, and that's, that's exactly it. And so now we get back, I guess, to the concept of uh, the selection process, right? There is a fascinating section in the book about testing. And it all sort of revolves around this idea of trying to hone in and select you know, get an idea of who to select, who's ready or who has the ability to play at a at a certain level of sport. And this idea of the NFL combines or the NBA combine, the NHL combines, I thought that was a fascinating part of the book because those tests can be meaningful if they're put in the proper perspective. But they could also be very misleading if they're not taken in context. And I believe there's a part there where we talk about in the book, uh, the Wonderlick test and what it actually is implying about the players who take it. I thought that was a fascinating read. And this whole idea of athlete testing, I think, could use a little rethink as well. Yeah, and the combine is an interesting uh, phenomenon uh, because it, it serves that purpose of testing in general areas, the athletes that are being considered for professional careers. But it also like it's got so much more um, impact than just being a measurement tool. Uh, it, it probably started out that way. Well, we know it started out that way, um, but it also has turned into such a you know, a big impact uh, multimedia social event for teams. Uh, so, you know, if a player comes in and they, they perform well, then the videos are instantaneously available on social media. It increases the, the, uh, you know, the, the brand and the perspective for that player. It increases their potential value as an athlete. So there's, there's the measurement element of what we get from the draft, which I think we could improve that. And part of the way we do that is by getting rid of tests like the Wonderlick, which don't represent the kinds of cognition that we see in the NFL. Uh, so we can do better with that. But let's also recognize that maybe the measurement part of what the draft does has become smaller and smaller in terms of importance over time. And the impact and the drive for, you know, to fan base pages and for fantasy leagues and all those kinds of things, that might be its primary purpose now. It might be very little of it is actually um, to help measure athletes in a way that we're going to use for predictive modeling. Uh, the teams that we work with, they don't get very much information from the draft for their modeling. They they use it as a, confirm, a confirmation um, technique. Yeah, it's exactly what we thought we would see with this athlete. And the only time they pay attention is when they get results that don't fit what they're already thinking. 
Yeah, I guess it goes back to, I think, another metaphor in the book that I totally enjoyed, too. It's where you said, hey, um, let's think like a meteorologist. I mean, it's better. You know, we mm. we, you know, I, the weather guy, I'm cursing him out when the weather's bad uh, and whether when the weather's good, I'm giving him a high five on the TV. Right. But I, I thought that was a great, a great analogy as well. I guess it goes back to kind of that confirmation bias. Right. And uh, the testing in sport really hasn't changed that much over the years, though. We're starting to see some updates now and getting a a little more uh, unique, uh, maybe hopefully more accurate testing, relevant testing done right now. But I really like that metaphor of of the meteorologist and the idea that we tend to focus on things that go wrong more than maybe the process of understanding what's actually happening. And that's the that's the way that our brains are wired, right? Like we uh, we like to explain the world, and when things go wrong, we like to look at the weatherman and say, "You were wrong on this day," without remembering the previous ninety days when they were right. Uh, and so I think you know the the metaphor of using the meteorologist is we understand that weather and weather prediction is the result of uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands of variables that we're trying to control in these massive, uh, huge data models that we use to predict weather events. That's the complexity that we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about athlete development and talent forecasting. It's the same level of complexity. In fact, you could even argue that it's more complicated than that because weather is a set of, of physical, you know, uh, uh, chemical variables that we could understand to a certain extent. Sport is those things. It's physical, it's psychological, it's cognitive. But the target, the end point of performance is also evolving over time in a really dynamic way. So, you know, we're not trying to figure out what won the Super Bowl last year. We're trying to figure out how it's going to change in the year uh, so that we can predict what's going to be necessary to win the Super Bowl next year. Mm -hmm. The target is always moving, which makes it one of the most complicated things we ever try to predict. And yet we try to simplify it so much. And I guess there's there's some power in that as well. Take, for example, my my files, my, my research files. You know, I'll get onto a topic like, for example, when I started talking to you about our talent and talent ID series on the radio show, I have a mountain of research articles around the topic. You and your colleagues are a big part of that for sure, Dr. Baker. Mm -hmm. And then we also did a series on uh, the brain game, looking at everything that that is. And it turned out to be a monster. It's much, much more than just, you know, performance thinking and, you know, the sports psychology. There are so many aspects to this brain game. It's changed our thinking entirely on how we dress that part of sport performance. Sleep is another one. We could talk about nutrition, you know, and with there, there's so many things that go into this. When we look at the research, Dr. Baker, and that's your world how cautious should we be about the articles we focus in on because i could look at one article and it might be bang on for a real pinpoint part of let's say talent and talent development when there's another thousand articles out there that also are pinpoint accurate on what they're talking about and those thousand articles kind of put together the big picture we have to be careful with a narrow focus here i think yeah, I agree. I think that's the that would be my response uh, to your question, Jeff. Was anything that looks like it's simple, you should 
disregard almost immediately because um, not only are humans not that simple, sport is not that simple uh, to be able to, you know, it's, it's never going to be grit. It's never going to be just mindset. It's never going to be just delivered practice. So um, I think we can discard those simple explanations pretty quickly. What we want to do is figure out, okay, this contribution of these hundreds or even thousands of variables in pretty small ways can help us understand this mosaic that we're trying to um, we're trying to predict and we're trying to to model. Um, those kinds of approaches, I think, are the ones that we should be paying attention to. Nobody wants to hear that, though. Nobody wants to hear that. Hey, you know what? It's way more complicated than you think. And uh, by the way, you can't just do this in coaching. You have to figure out how this links to a thousand other things. That that's a bitter pill to swallow, um, but it's probably more representative what of what reality looks like. Yeah, I think so. And I think that also takes us full circle to the title of your book. And maybe we'll end with this today, Dr. Baker. Um, I could steal you for hours here, but what a fascinating conversation. What a fascinating topic, especially for anybody and involved, not just in sport though. I, I, th- I can't help but think about academics here. Or, you know, last night we went to the opening night of the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra and they had a Hans Zimmer special, you know, going through his great movie scores. Mm. But watching those performers, you know, working as a team, but yet they're individual talent levels are so incredible but when they get together as a team they make a sound that one person just cannot make it's just it's so fascinating to me and I use that sort of as an analogy for for a team sport as well you know getting all these incredibly skilled people together uh, to create an outcome and then reacting on the spot and then also planning for the future Um, the tyranny of talent how it compels and limits athletic achievement. And this part right here, Dr. Baker, and why you should ignore it. Um, is there something deeper to the title here than, than we might be first initially aware of? It's uh, the ignore it part is just sort of recognizing just how powerful a role it has in discussions of athlete development and, and child development more generally. This idea that you know, if I don't see these indicators of future success at this point in time, then, well, you're not going to be a success in that area. Um, I think we need to get rid that sort of approach and embrace the idea that there's a thousand different pathways that an athlete can take to end up in the same place. You know, your example of the musicians, they create this thing that when they're together, that's beautiful and breathtaking. Uh, but if we look at the individual journey of everyone on that stage, it probably differed in, in really meaningful and profound ways. And so let's spend more time focusing on the noise and the variability between individuals the ignoring talent part in the title of the book was around the reality that you have no control over what your talent is. You have no control. You have no control over those factors. And so to empower people in their own lives, whether that's as an athlete or or any kind of performer, um, you need to take control of the things that you actually have control over. And talent isn't one of those, but hard work is designing better environments is maybe sacrificing late Friday nights so that you can get up and have a good day on Saturday. Those things are under your control. And so we spend a disproportionate amount of our time focusing on this thing called talent that we have no control over. And if we did, we're terrible at identifying it. Um, And so let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the things that are under our control, like hard work, training environment, persistence, uh, those types of factors. 
it that brings me back to just this this uh, obsession I have with problem solving and decision making. I just sort of hung my hat on that about mm. you know 15 years ago uh, when I was working with the Blue Jays. So I was the first minor league strength coach for the Toronto Blue Jays and only the third full-time minor league strength coach in all of baseball. <laughs> it kind of dates me a bit, but it was an, an absolute uh, lightning in a bottle opportunity to step into an organization like that and actually build a program from scratch. And I'm going, huh, what the hell am I supposed to do here? Because, you know, uh, there was no there was no textbook. There was no um, guiding light. Uh, it, I just said, OK, I sat down in the office one day going, holy smokes, uh, they've given me this incredible honor and huge responsibility, not just to the organization, Dr. Baker. I took it seriously for every player that we were trying to help out in that organization. I'm going, how in the world do we make this work? And I just sat down and I remembered words from my grandfather and my dad. They said, look, okay, all you have to do is take a step back, look at the situation, understand, try to understand what's going on, pinpoint where you want to go, problem solve, just problem solve and then make a decision and then react, make a decision and react. And I kind of, I kind of hung my hat there and it's kind of really worked out so far, at least in my world. I think that's a great example of, um, you know, of the potential that we have if we give people a bit of creative license and flexibility to try new ways of doing things. Um, because the reality is we have way more gaps in our system than we have reasons for certainty and to put people into, you know, here's your role, here's your responsibility to the system. Here's the size of cog you are in this overly complicated system that we have. The reality is we don't have that understanding of most people's roles yet. And so we need people that are going to be able to go into positions like you did with that strength and conditioning role and say, okay, I don't really understand this role, but like, can they understand the size and scope of the problem first? And then start carving off little bits of pieces that I can solve with Previous understanding or knowledge that's available to me. These are the things that where I need to drive using data that I'm going to collect. Here's how I do that. Like we need to be thinking about these kinds of roles and responsibilities for what the next generation is going to look like. Yeah, it's you know if we think about it from the initiation point of a player entering the system to the time at which they leave the system through retirement or, or whatever. There's a lot of gaps in that understanding that we're going to have to fill if we really want to be able to predict with any great accuracy uh, someone's long-term potential for success. Yeah, and that's so, uh, so important for parents to hear. Parents need to hear that right now. Coaches need to hear that right now. Uh, sport organization administrators from grassroots right up need to hear that message right now. Dr. Baker, one last thing. Do you think, based on everything that you've uh, researched and understood and learned now and all the great sharing that you've done, do you think that programs, I mean, if you look at Australia, they're doing some great, great stuff over there. New Zealand's doing some cool things. Great Britain's doing great stuff. Canada, Sport Canada is really being progressive here. And I can't wait to see what happens at the Tannenbaum Institute Institute for Science in Sport. And, and you've also worked with some professional organizations and some national teams as well. Do you think the organizations can make the shift? Do you think they can be flexible enough to make that kind of a shift where they're going, okay, here we have this great young talent. Let's pinpoint where they're at and let's decide individually 
what the best process is. I was so caught up in tradition, especially in games like baseball when it comes to uh, athlete and player development. Uh, do you think we're at a point where we can be flexible enough inside of an organization to make those massive commitments to the players and the athletes involved? It probably varies by um, team and by organization, but I think what we've got to see first is um, impetus for change. So like what happened that shook the system to the point where we want major change to happen. Um, we need that kind of event, right? And so, you know, if everything's going relatively well and teams are making the playoffs and jerseys are getting sold and season tickets are getting sold, um, there's no impetus for major change. What we need to see is some kind of disaster, right? If you look at Australia, which I put up as maybe the greatest, um, you know, sports science system in the world and has been leading for decades, their impetus was the 1976 um, Olympics. They did so poorly there that they went back. There was government will. There was public demand. There was impetus for major system change. And major change doesn't come in the uh, with the lack of that kind of energy. You need that for major change to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if we looked closely enough in the injury rates and the dropout rates in youth sport – we're pretty close to that tipping point, I would say, Dr. Baker. Yeah, yeah, like we're seeing it uh, in some sports with concussion. We're having a we're having a crisis of safe sport and uh, mental health and athlete abuse in a lot of sports in Canada now. So there's there's in, there's definitely energy for change there. It's a it now it's an issue of how do we harness it? How do we use it as a force for good instead of the status quo and uh, and move forward f from there with the right people in the right roles? Yeah, well, you know they say necessity. Um, is the mother of change. So we're looking for some exciting things to be happening here. Dr. Baker, listen, um, I want to thank you here for all your input on the show, you know, through our Talent Talent ID series, but over the years as well, and all the people you've connected us with. We've had such great, informative conversations and your book, of course. It is, without question, one of my favorite reads of all time, and it's certainly a crush must read. So I want to thank you for all your work there and for today's conversation, of course. Fascinating stuff. I look forward to staying in touch. Yes, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I look forward to the next time. So what do you think? Are we on track with our understanding of talent or do we have work to do? I feel we've made some great progress in advancing our understanding, but the big challenge now is putting it into practice in the real world of sport and as athletes move through this world, which to be clear, is a long game. I feel like everyone else, I suppose. We should try to simplify it all. But how do you simplify something like sport, which is so, so complex? Sport just isn't that simple. And on top of that, the target is always moving. Sport is constantly evolving. And then on top of that, you have the athletes within sport. The athletes and players in the system who are also constantly developing, changing, and advancing. And then not only that, they're progressing, changing, and developing at their own individual rates and in their own individual ways. It's just not that simple. And as Dr. Baker said, anything that looks simple, you should disregard immediately. Not only are humans not simple, sport is not that simple. He went on to say, it's never going to be just grit. 
It's never going to be just mindset. It's never going to be just deliberate practice. We need to consider the hundreds, if not even thousands of variables that make up human development in sport. So I think as a coach, as an athlete, as a parent, we need to embrace the fact that there are thousands of different pathways an athlete can take to wind up at the very same place. There's no question this thing called talent is the currency that drives sport and athlete development. But like the great investors and entrepreneurs or even the poker players who bide their time strategically slowing down or holding back at certain points and then putting it all on the table and executing a very succinct plan at other points in time. Perhaps this is the ebb and flow that we need to consider in order to advance sport. Perhaps these are the dots we need to connect in order to push human performance forward. Perhaps these are the very changes we need to make to correct our approach in sport performance and athletic achievement. One thing is for certain, it does appear that greatness is up for grabs for those who understand and consider everything involved in truly thinking like an athlete. I'm Jeff Kershell. If you like this episode, you can go back to the Crush Archives to hear our entire series on talent. It was the main theme for our 2020 season. We had fascinating, world-renowned guests and captivating conversations surrounding the topic of talent and talent ID and everything else that's involved. This series of conversations literally changed our approach to athlete and player development. You can go to our website, jeffkershell.com, to check out that amazing series. And while you're there, you might want to look at our Brain Game series. It's as interesting and as important. The Crush Podcast is recorded in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner is Radio Influence Digital Media. Website and educational materials produced and directed by Debbie Kershell, Mrs. Crusher. Our theme music, graphics, and video design are put together by the talented Noah Olexen at Nolexen Visual and Sound. And again, this is season 18 of Crush Performance. You can get the Crush archives and subscribe to the show at jeffkershell.com. And follow me on social media. Just search out Crush Performance. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance. <laughs>